Matthew chapter 26. And isn't it uh, great to celebrate baptisms? Wonderful, encouraging reminder that we all who are in Christ have died to ourselves and have been raised to walk in the newness of life. Um, such a truth. Praise God for that. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 35. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 1. Please follow along in your Bible as I read. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to the disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why waste this? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor, you always will have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man to have not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after 
I am raised up. I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though all will fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we come into your scriptures that you speak to us this morning. Help me as I try to communicate the message that I believe is contained in this text. And I pray that you would speak to us, that your word would become living and powerful. I pray that the Holy Spirit will illuminate this text and the truth therein so that we might believe, so that we might see. I pray that we will experience Jesus this morning. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's see if you guys know a know an old hymn without any uh, lyrics, alright? Sing this with me. Jesus loves me this come on. For the tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is not bad, not bad, not bad. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yep, yep. Brian, thank you for that beat. I appreciate that. Man. It's a good snap. This song was actually written for a girl who was dying, a little girl. It was written to be comfort for her in her dying years. And you can, in some ways, you can kind of get the sense of how it was written to a child. Little children, they are weak, but he is strong. But let me ask you this. Is that a ch- child's song? Are those children lyrics? Who in Matthew are the children? We are. The believers. Who in Matthew are the little ones? We are. Who in Matthew are the weak? We are. I remember as a child singing that growing up in Sunday school. They are weak, but he is strong. I remember thinking, like, children are weak. I am weak, and one day I'll be strong. Nope. That's not the truth. You guys agree with me too quickly there. Spiritual, spiritually speaking, I am not strong. All right? Physical, we'll talk about that another time. But I am the weak. You are the weak in that song. We were when we were eight years old, if you grew up in church singing that. And you will be and still will remain when you're 80 years old. I am weak, but he is strong. Are you trusting in your weakness this morning? Or are you trusting in the strength of Jesus Christ? Nothing shows us human frailty more so than this passage right here. This passage for us highlights the fragility of the human spirit. It shows us that we are weak. You know, one of the offensive truths of Christianity is that you are weak. 
We don't like that, do we? Not as Americans. We're not weak. Friends, in order to be a Christian, you have to first admit, I am weak. I'm weak. I'm fragile. I'm frail. And we come to this text and we see the fragility of even his own disciples. The next two chapters lead us to the cross of Jesus Christ. One theologian put it this way, he says, these two chapters are the most holy ground in the Scriptures. But it first begins with a deadly plot. We can break this chapter down into three scenes. The first scene is that Jesus is the enemy of the state. State enemy, public enemy, number one. As the politicians of the day, who are the religious leaders in Israel, turn against him. The second scene, we see that he's actually betrayed from within. One of his own turns against him and joins popular opinion in his arrest. And then thirdly, we see at the very end that he is failed by all. Let's actually go to that one. Let's jump forward a little bit in the text. So we see right there in verses 26 through 29, we see what the, the Lord's Supper. We see the Passover meal eaten. This is what's become known popularly as the last Supper. Now, the intimacy of the Supper is broken in verse 31 when Jesus gives yet another prophecy. He's going to die, yes. Second prophecy he gives in verse 31 is he says, you will all fall away because of me this, this night. You will all fall away because of... He's talking to his own. He's not talking to the crowds who laid palm branches in front of him. He's talking to his inner circle. He's talking to his 12. 11 in this case, because one of them has already gone out. He's going to betray him. He's talking to the 11 who he just ate the meal with. Who he just gave the, the cup to and the bread to. And, he, and, and, and the intimacy is broken as he turns. And he says, you're going to fall away tonight. And then in verse 56, later on, we'll see this next week, they all scatter. They all abandon Christ. I, I have been so moved this week as I have meditated on this passage. As I first see myself there, as one who is weak, as one who is frail, as one who, as the world turns against Christ, I'm so quickly to turn on him myself. The frailty of the human spirit, yet in the midst of it, right at the center of this passage, we see this meal. And look what he says at the meal in verse 28. Remember, everybody is turning against him. The religious leaders, the state, his own Judas is about to betray him. 
his own disciples are going to fail him and run from him. And look what Jesus gives to them in verse 28. He gives them a drink. And he says, here, drink this. This is for you. I want you to, I want you to drink all of it. Why? Verse 28, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In the midst of all of this human weakness, we see the strength of Jesus Christ who looks at the very people who are about to fail him and he's saying, I'm doing something for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. That is the the theme under which we want to study this text today. For the forgiveness of of sins. Aren't you glad that your salvation doesn't depend on you? Aren't you glad that your salvation doesn't depend on how faithful you have been to Jesus? You know, the salvation for the disciples here has nothing to do with them. The, the, the salvation of these 11 who are sitting with him at the meal has nothing to do with their own intrinsic strength. They are about to be crushed and run. Aren't you glad that salvation hinges on the strength of Jesus Christ? I am weak, but you are strong. That's what that song is about. God loves us. God has poured out his love for us in Jesus Christ. Why? Not because I am strong, but because Christ is strong. I want to introduce you this morning not just simply to the death plot that we see in this passage, but I want to introduce you to the life-giving plan of the Father. I want to introduce you to this servant this morning. who is strong. Let me describe him to you. First, we see that Jesus here is, in this passage, a willing servant. He's a willing servant. I love one pastor's illustration, which I've used before. He says, you know, imagine it was Valentine's Day and I were to show up at my house with some flowers for my wife and she says oh so sweet and I say well it's Valentine's Day I have to and not so sweet anymore is it nobody wants someone to do something for them just out of obligation nobody wants somebody to do something for them just out of some sense of duty Why did Christ go to the cross? What led Christ to that? Was it obligation? Was it just some kind of cold duty? Was it an accident? Like he's trying to teach some good stuff and bring about something, and then all of a sudden the world turns against him, and oh, my, didn't see this coming. We're going to make the best of it. Why did Christ go to the cross? He went as a willing, everybody said the word willing. He went as a willing servant on your behalf 
for you. Look at the text. Look at verse 2. Jesus himself says, the Passover is coming. Now, he's giving a prophecy here. He's predicting his death at Passover season, which we're going to come back to that theme of Passover in just a moment. And he says in verse 2 that the Son of Man, this Passover, will be delivered over to those who are going to kill him. Who is delivering the Son of Man over into the hands of the enemy? I don't think he's referring to Judas here. I think he's referring to God himself. The Son himself. The Father himself delivering the Son of Man over to be crucified. As a matter of fact, Matthew is not written chronologically. We've talked about this a little bit in the past. Matthew is, is written topically. He takes events that took place and arranges them in a topical fashion to make a point. So notice in verse 3, he places the plot to kill Jesus after Jesus' prediction of his own death. You see in verse 3, he says, then, which isn't chronological. It means immediately or at that time. The chief priests, they're gathering together where? At Caiaphas's house. This is a palace of the high priest. This is the state, the religious state, gathering together to plot how to kill Jesus. And they're saying, let's not do it during the feast. Because this is Passover season and thousands of pilgrims would descend upon Jerusalem and it wasn't known to be a time for uprisings and that was a problem in Jerusalem. So they say, let's wait until Passover festivities are, are ended and then we will go ahead and kill this man. So that there, there wouldn't be an uprising. That's the plot in verse 3. But what I think Matthew is showing us is that Jesus' own prediction comes before the plot ever took place. Which means Jesus didn't go to the cross because somebody plotted against him. Jesus went to the cross as a willing servant. Jesus went to the cross out of his own desire to save this means that the leaders may plot, but it's only Jesus' willing submission that would lead him to the cross. This means that the world will turn against Christ and the world will attack Christ, but it's only Christ giving himself freely that can explain the cross. This means that Satan will tempt and scheme man to turn on Christ, to put him down, to destroy him. But it's only Christ's sovereign plan that can explain the cross. Isaiah says that he was like a, led lamb, a lamb led to the slaughter, which means he walked willingly. To the cross. The point I'm trying to make here is that Jesus died willingly for you. Jesus wasn't coerced into his death. The Father didn't force him to die for you. This cartoon image of God and the Father in heaven saying, well, you've got to go die. And Jesus is like, like this reluctant servant, don't want to do it. I don't want to do that, Dad. Yeah, you've got to do it. And kind of pushes Jesus toward, that is, that's, 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 that's a mockery of the cross. Christ is a willing servant. This isn't child abuse. 
lays down his life for you out of his own desire, out of his own love for you. Jesus was resolute. He could have run. He could have hid. He could have disappeared. He's God. As the old song says, he could have called 10,000 angels. But he died alone for you and me. Willingly. Gave himself for your life. You know, many of us, most of what we do is out of obligation. We have to eat and we have to have a warm place to sleep, so therefore we have what we call bills. We have to pay bills, and so therefore we have what we call a job. Work. Make money. And because we make money, we have to pay taxes. And so we pay taxes. There's so much of what we do in life. We, we do it just out of a sense of obligation. This is why you get a lot of unhappy people in this world. Like 99% of what they're doing is just obligation. Jesus did nothing for you out of cold obligation. The only obligation he had was his own holy, sovereign, voluntary decision to die for your sins. He died for you willingly. I want you to wrap your mind around that truth. Secondly, we see that he is also a worthy servant in this passage. He's willing and he is worthy. Someone said once that we know the cost of everything, but we know the value of nothing. How much does Jesus cost in this text? Somebody help me out. Nope. How much does he cost? How much does Jesus cost the religious leaders in this text? 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. That's how much he cost. It's a very meager amount. What is Jesus' value? We can determine his cost here. But what is he worth? What does he value? Now look at what Matthew places next. He talks here about Jesus being at the house of Simon the leper. So now we see Jesus in the house of this, this leper who he probably had healed. Otherwise, it would be uh, against the Levitical law for Jesus to be eating with the man. So they're eating, they're eating together in this man's house. Uh, John tells us Lazarus is there, Mary's there, Martha's there. And, and then uh, we see that a woman comes up to Jesus in verse 7. The woman here is nameless, but John later in chapter, John chapter 12 tells us that that woman is Mary, Mary of Bethany. Mary comes up to Jesus and she anoints him with this ointment that is not any common ointment. This isn't the ointment that you would use in their tradition to just simply anoint every house guest. But this is an alabaster flask of, of what John tells us is pure nard. This would have been something that would, have, that would be reserved for just like a very, very, very special occasion. And John tells us it was worth 300 denarii. That was about a year's worth of income. Imagine having a little perfume bottle that is worth your entire annual income. She pulls it out for Christ. And here we learn that she puts it on his head. And John tells us that she also anoints his feet. I think what we see here is Christ anointed from head to toe in this, in this 
oil, in this perfume, in this expensive ointment. Now in verse 8, the disciples become indignant. And John again gives us a little more of a narrative here. We learn that the speaker, the one who stands up and voices what the disciples are feeling is actually Judas Iscariot. Couldn't we have sold this and fed the poor? What a terrible use of the pure nard. What a terrible use of this very expensive perfume to just pour it onto the body of Jesus Christ. We could have sold this and we could have fed the poor with it. And John tells us, he says that Judas didn't say this out of a heart for the poor. He says it because he's greedy and because he was the money bag keeper and that he would often get his hands in the money. This comes from a place of greed. So Jesus, knowing their motives, responds, you're always going to have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Friends, God incarnate, their Savior, is before them. How valuable is he? How valuable is his body, which is about to be broken on their behalf? Now contrast this with Judas in verse 14. Look what happens with Judas. So after this, Judas goes out, probably, I think, looking at the John passage as well, Judas is upset that Jesus just allowed this woman to take this expensive body and and put it all over his body. Judas is disappointed with what Christ has been doing. Judas is starting to realize that I'm not going to get very rich off this man. And so Judas goes out in verse 14, and what does he do? He goes straight to those who have been plotting his death, and he says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Remember, the religious state was going to wait until after the Passover. Yet they cannot refuse Jesus' offer. Judas' offer. And they jump at it and they say, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver was a very small amount. It's hard to know exactly how much that, uh, how much that amount was, but it's very small. A meager amount. How much is Jesus worth for Judas? 30 pieces of silver. That's how much he cost. I want you to see this contrast between this woman who takes an entire year's income of perfume and breaks it on her Savior versus Judas who sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. That's what I think Matthew wants us to see here. How much is Jesus worth to you? How much is he worth to you? Oh, he's worth one hour every Sunday morning. That's about it for some of us. <laughs> How much is he worth to you? Is he worth all of your gifts? Is he worth all of your talents? Is he worth an entire year's income? Is he worth all of the money you'll ever make in your life? How much is he worth to you? Is he worth losing the popular acceptance in society? How much is Christ worth to you? Or I could ask it another way. Are you disappointed with what Christ has been doing in your life? 
Oh, he's not worth. He costs about 30 pieces of silver because, frankly, I'm not really satisfied with what he's been doing in my life. I don't like the way things are turning out with my life, with where I live, with how much money or how little money I make, with what job I have. I don't like the way my kids are turning out. I don't like the way... I don't like the way Jesus is treating me. How much is he worth? Are you thinking like Mary or are you thinking like Judas Iscariot? You know, servants we typically don't think of as being worth very much. 30 pieces of silver was actually the price that a dead servant would cost in their culture. Meaning if someone was borrowing another man's servant and that servant was accidentally, accidentally according to the Levitical law, gored to death, he was worth 30 pieces of silver. Jesus is worth, according to Judas, a dead the price of a dead servant. But friends, do you know that God throughout Matthew has been reversing our understanding of how much a servant is worth? What we have seen in this gospel is that the greatest who are among you are those who serve. Jesus is the greatest servant you will ever know. No one will ever serve more than Jesus. Who, therefore, is the most worthy in the kingdom of God? Jesus Christ. He is a worthy servant. Moving on, thirdly, he is also a sacrificial servant. We see that he is a sacrificial servant in this text. I heard a story of the SS Dorchester. It was a ship that sailed out during World War II in 1943. And it loaded with 900 passengers that December. The following February, the Dorchester was hit by German torpedoes. Someone heard, the ship is going down. And everybody began to scramble to put on life jackets as they, as they were in the middle of the sea. There were not, a lot, not enough life jackets for everybody on board. One of the GIs lost the life jacket that he had, and he cried out, I can't find my life jacket. And a chaplain overheard it who was wearing a life jacket. And the chaplain took off his, and he gave it to the sailor. And following suit, all of the chaplains on the Dorchester took off their life jackets and gave them to sailors who did not have a life jacket. And the chaplains stood together in the center of the ship and went down with the ship and perished at sea. A substitution. One life for another. What we see is that Jesus Christ is your substitution. In this text we see that he is a sacrificial, substitutional Servant. Look at verse 17. The tension rises as preparations are made for Passover. This would have been Thursday. 
During the day, they get ready for the feast. The feast will begin after sunset that night as Passover begins Thursday night. The meal will begin, and by the next day, Friday afternoon, Jesus will be hanging on a cross. In verse 20, the meal begins. The sun is set. Jesus is eating now the Passover with his disciples. Look at verse 21. As they're eating, he says, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus announces at the dinner that that he is going to be betrayed from within. Who is it going to be? He gives them a clue. He says, the one who betrays me will dip their hand into the bowl. They used to eat uh, bread. Uh, they, would, they would grab the meat with the bread and they would dip it into like somewhat of a fruit sauce. Now, all of the twelve would have dipped their hand into the bowl. So what Jesus is saying at this point is that it's one of us. One of you. Someone from the inside is going to betray me. It's not someone out there, but there's wickedness and depravity in here. Judas, there in verse 25, he asks, Is it I, Rabbi? And he says to him, You have said so. At this point, Judas probably walks out. Now, in verse 26, we see what's called the institution of the Lord's Supper. So they're eating the Passover together. What is the significance of the Passover? When does the Passover initially take place? Someone help me out here. Let's talk a little bit. Where do we first see Passover? Egypt. Thank you. Right. They're in Egypt. And there's a lamb that's slaughtered as a substitute so that the oldest son might live. That's the narrative in Egypt. And there's blood painted on the doorway, right? And as a result of the blood on the doorway, there's a Passover, meaning the, the wrath of God does not come down on that household. But there's been a substitute. So thousands of Jews would come into Jerusalem every year to celebrate and to remember the night that God passed over. And that God then therefore delivered the people out of exile, out of slavery, bondage in Egypt. So Jesus here is eating the Passover with his disciples. And he takes the cup. This is probably the third cup in the meal. There were four cups total. The third cup is what's called the cup of blessing. And it would signify redemption. It would signify the blessing that we have being freed out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt. And he takes a cup toward the end of the meal. And he says, this is my blood. This is my, the, the, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness, for many for the forgiveness of sins. In the Mishnah, in an old Jewish text, it shows us that the Jews actually saw the wine at the Passover as a symbol of the blood that would be a seal, the lamb that would be the seal of the old covenant. 
And what Jesus is showing us is what he's showing his disciples as he holds the cup. He says, this is my blood. This is a representation. This is a symbol of my blood, which is going to be poured out for you. Now, he uses covenantal language. He says there's going to be a covenant. This is a reference back to Jeremiah chapter 31 where we see a prophecy of a new covenant that God is going to make with his people. Jesus is making this new covenant with his disciples and with all who trust in him. The relationship that's established at the cross is definable in terms of a covenant with God. God has promised us something. He's given us blessings, covenantal blessings for all who are part of this covenant. And the blood that is the seal for that covenant is the blood of Jesus Christ. He holds the bread before that and he breaks it. He says, this is my body which is broken for you. I want you to see how radical it is for Jesus to take the elements of the Passover meal and say, this refers to me. C.S. Lewis was right when he said Jesus was either a lunatic or Lord. This, what we're, this Passover meal, what happened years ago, redemption out of Egypt, blood, lamb slain for the death, for, for the life of the child, this, all of this, he says, it refers to me. This is my blood, and this is my body. That is radical. Are you guys tracking with me? Are you wrapping your mind around the reality that Jesus is either a lunatic or Lord? He says, this is me, this is mine, it's about me. He is the sacrifice. Who serves you like Jesus? Nobody serves you like Jesus. Your father may have worked long hours to put food on the table. Your mother may have given up a lot of her own desires for your good. A father, a husband, he might choose to not move cross-country for the sake of his wife. A single person might, might work hard and, and give up some of their, their free time to serve others. I think of Stephanie. She's actually cooking this morning at 6 a.m. for people she's having over for lunch. Sacrificing sleep, amen. A friend might sacrifice their own sanity to sit down with you and listen to your problems. Yes, we sacrifice for each other. And we should see sacrificial love happening in this church. Someone of a different ethnicity might sit down and sacrifice their own comfort to hear your thoughts. We should love each other with a sacrificial kind of way. I'm walking away from my comfort zone. I'm walking away from my desires. I'm walking away from what I want so I can sacrificially serve you and love you. That is the life of, a being, of being a Christian, is it not? But friends, who serves you like Jesus? Who has ever served you like Jesus? 
Who has died so that you might live eternally? Who has given their life, taking the wrath of God for your sins upon their own shoulder? Who serves you as a substitutional sacrifice? Does anybody serve you like Jesus? Absolutely not. He is worthy. He is a sacrificial servant. Lastly, he is effective. This is the strength of Jesus, all right? So, we, so far I've talked about how he's willing, he's worthy, he's sacrificial, but he's also effective. Meaning he gets the job done. Now what's the job that he's coming to do? It's a big one. Forgive sins. That's a big one. Has anybody ever forgiven you? Anybody? You guys know how, what it feels like when someone says, I forgive you? Like you've wronged somebody and that's weighing on you heavy and they say, I forgive you? Nobody? Oh, okay, okay. I just remember uh, Miss Laney, my neighbor, I was going to bring her to church one Sunday. And she, uh, I told her I'll pick her up. And, uh, and she was dressed. She was ready. She was sitting on her stoop waiting for me. And she was having some trouble. She couldn't walk. And uh, I forgot to get her. And after the service, yeah, after the service, I looked at my phone and saw a couple text messages sitting outside waiting for you. This is actually when I was just getting to know Miss Laney as well, all right? So I stopped by her house, no answer. Call, goes to voicemail. So I text her and I say, Laney, I'm so sorry. And she writes back and says, oh, honey, not a problem. I forgive you. It feels good, doesn't it? It feels good. Like we know how amazing forgiveness is. You've wronged people before. I know you have. I know a lot of you. And I know a lot of you very, very well. I should be hearing a couple more amens right now. You know how good it feels to be forgiven. How liberating it is to be forgiven. You just want to sing and dance and shout. And you're not even a singing, dancing, shouting type, but you do it anyway. Because you've been forgiven. Why is it then that we make light of God's forgiveness of our sins? We say, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. I, I need more than that. That's not enough. I heard one pastor say, you know what? We've got to stop just talking to people about God forgiving their sins, and we need to t tell them how to have a good marriage. We need to teach them how to handle their finances. We need to give them some stuff. What? <laughs> As if God forgiving your sins is not enough stuff to talk about in the church for the rest of my life? He forgives you. That's what we see here in this text. Look at it. 
in the midst of all of this human frailty, in the midst of people just betraying him and plotting against him and, and turning their backs on him, he says, I'm doing this. In verse 28, he says, I'm doing this for the forgiveness of sins. Here, drink this. All of it. Eat this. I'm doing this for the forgiveness of sins. It's a gift. You know, some today will say that the substitutional atonement of Christ is wrong-headed. That Christ didn't really do anything transactional on the cross. That it was mere symbol. That it was a, a statement of God's power over, over sin and over all that the world can throw at him. Now, all of that's true. It is a symbol. It is a statement of God's power that, that Christ is victorious. But it's God's power in that he's forgiving sins on the cross. The power of the cross is in the fact that Christ took the wrath of God for my sin. That is how we have victory. The power of the cross is in the forgiveness of sins that Christ accomplishes. This is why I say he's an effective servant. It's not that he just does stuff nice for you and helps. He does something for you. Like he's effective. The, the cross of Jesus Christ accomplishes something. What does it accomplish? It accomplishes the forgiveness of sins. One popular songwriter, Christian songwriter, just recently was tweeting about the fact that Christian songs need to be broadened beyond substitutional atonement. He says it's one of the most evil views of God that, that Christ would bear the wrath of God for you is, according to this songwriter, one of the most evil views of God. And he says we need to sing more than just about the forgiveness of Christ that we have through his blood. Friends, that is just standing completely opposed to the scriptures, to the gospel, to what we are confronted with, with the cross of Christ. And the cross of Christ is at the center of human history. The cross of Christ is at the center of all of eternity. What do we see in Revelation? The church singing forever and ever. In Worthy is the what? The lamb. The sacrificial lamb. The substitutional lamb. Worthy is the one, the lamb, who took away the sins of the world. For all of eternity, we will stand in awe of the cross. The cross that Christ would die for a sinner in our place. And that's why it must be the center of our liturgy, the center of our songs, the center of our preaching, the center of our discipleship. The cross, the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ Jesus. Since when can we make light of that? 
John Stott said this. He said, for, for God, forgiveness is the profoundest of problems. And what he means by that is God is just and God forgives. How is that possible? And John Stott goes on to say the cross answers this great dilemma. For in the cross we see the justice of God on sinners, the wrath of God on guilt, taken by Jesus Christ, your servant, for you, so that you can now be forgiven. He's doing this. His body is broken. His blood is poured out so that you can be forgiven. He says it himself. It's for the forgiveness of sins. Are you tracking with me? You know, when we ask questions, when I ask questions such as like, how am I doing in life? When you ask yourself that question, how am I doing in life? Let's just think about that for a moment. Just for a moment. Think, ask yourself this question. How am I doing in life? How are you feeling? <laughs> Honest. How am I doing in life? We think, man, I, I kind of screw up a lot. Spend all my free time on Netflix and on myself. Spend most of my time that I have free just trying to be alone to get some peace and quiet. How, how are you doing in life? You think, man, I fell, fell into sin again. Again. Same thing. Fell into sin again? Fell into lust? Struggling with spending my money on the wrong stuff? I've got anger. I lost my temper again. I said something I shouldn't have said and I offended somebody. I hate my job, yet I find my identity in my job. Isn't that strange how we can do that? How, how are we doing? You know, when we start asking these questions and we're honest with ourselves, we are left with a tremendous amount of guilt. The answer is this. I am weak. I am frail. I don't think you have to prove guilt to anybody. I really don't. I think people are naturally guilty. We don't need how-to sermons. What we need to know is that God in Christ forgives you. What's radical about grace, what's radical about the message of the Bible, what's radical about our faith is not that God gives us some stuff to do. What's radical is that God forgives you. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. But you don't know what I did. You're forgiven. But I've been thinking this whole time about all this. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You've had trouble singing this morning and had trouble worshiping and focusing because you feel so guilty. Stop that. You're forgiven. Okay, that's, that's a to-do. Stop that. Stop feeling guilty. Why? You're forgiven. 
God in Christ forgives you. Do you realize how radical his forgiveness is? Do you realize how broad his forgiveness is? As many times as you have failed in life, it will never cancel out his forgiveness. God has more grace in Christ than you have sin in yourself. Constantly falling back into sin. Constantly falling back into... What do we do? We jump again into the pool of the gospel. We're washed by His blood. We're reminded He died for me. I'm forgiven. Past, present, and future, God forgives us. I am weak. I am weak. I see myself with the politicians here. I see myself with Judas here. I see myself with the the disciples here. Greedy. We could have sold that stuff and pocketed some of that. It's all over your body now. Ointment. I see myself with, with Peter who says, I will never turn my back on you. I see myself with all the disciples who agree with Peter and say, we will die for you. Yet we fail. Yet we're frail. Yet we are weak. Romans 3.25 says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through, shedding, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Do you have this faith? Faith. Trust. Are you trusting in Christ now? Are you receiving the forgiveness of God in Christ now through faith? Do you cling to Him? Do you preach the Gospel to yourself? When you wake up in the middle of the night, as I do at times with anxiety and feelings of guilt, thinking through all the things I need to do in life and all the things I've done wrong, do we preach the gospel to ourselves and say, no, I'm forgiven. The guilt has been washed away in Christ Jesus. He died for me. He went to the cross willingly for me. He's worthy of all that I am and all that I have. He is a sacrifice for me. And He is poured out for the forgiveness of my sins. His death is effective. There's nothing else you have to do to be saved. Look to Christ. Receive Christ. Enter into the covenant of God in Christ and find forgiveness at the cross. This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. He took on flesh. He bore the wrath. That's the power of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you assure us of our forgiveness in Christ, that we would stand with confidence with Jesus Christ as our older brother whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.